Amen. Let's turn now and ask that the Lord would um, hear our prayer as we pray and ask for him to illumine our hearts and our minds as we come to the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, without your word, we would have no light for our feet, no lamp for our path. Uh, we would soon wander off of it and into darkness and into dangers of, of many kinds. And so we ask that as you give to us now your word, that you would help us to pay attention to it, uh, to listen and heed it, uh, to follow it, and to know that um, you, as you do your work in us, are do, you are doing a saving work, a loving work, and a gracious work, um, teaching us to deny ungodliness, to mortify, to put to death the sinful passions and desires in our hearts, and put on uh, the gospel, put on um, the promises of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have through him because of his work for us on the cross. We look to him now and ask that uh, in him you would hear our prayer and that you would help us now um, as we come to the reading and preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please remain standing and let's hear God's word in Titus. Um, Titus chapter 3. Um, I'm going to be focusing on verse 1, but I'll read 1 through 7 this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul instructs Titus to remind the churches of something, to give uh, these new and growing churches in, on the island of Crete an, an important reminder. And in doing so, he also instructs uh, me and all other ministers of the gospel to give reminders to you and to all other churches of Christ uh, throughout the ages. An important reminder. And what is the reminder that I am supposed to give you this morning? 
It is a reminder about obedience. In particular, the obedience that we as Christians owe to those who are in charge over us, to rulers and authorities, he calls them. And what does Paul mean when he says rulers and authorities? We could say a number of things about this, but I think we can keep it pretty simple. He means people who are in charge of us, who have uh, responsibilities for us, who have a right uh, to rule us in some way. And there's quite a few to name. Uh, Who are they? Well, if you're a child, your parents, of course, are rulers and authorities. If you're a Christian, there are pastors and elders. If you're a student, you have teachers. If you're an employee, you have bosses. And we always have government authorities like judges and police officers and governors, depending on where we're living. We all have rulers and authorities in our lives. There's no one who doesn't um, in some way uh, or another. Now, in the Bible, the, we, God gives to us lots of instructions and instructions to those who are in authority. What does it mean to rule well? What does it mean to rule poorly, to teach poorly? Um, and these kinds of things. Um, There's lots of instructions to those who are in authority, but that's not our focus for today. Our focus today is on how we, as those who are under authority, ought to treat those who are over us. Well, as we hear this reminder uh, this morning, I think it's important to begin by remembering that this command, this reminder, comes from the one who rules over all of us over everyone, and who has no one above him, God, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Son of God and as the Son of David, he issues this command through his word and spirit as he sits in heaven on a throne surrounded by a hundred million angels, angels, each and every single one of them that are ready to do his bidding at a moment's notice, without hesitation, Psalm 103.20 says of the angels that they are mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his command. This is the one who says to Paul, who says to Titus, who says to us, remind them. Remind them to be obedient, to be submissive, to be ready for every Good work. This is the, the word that our Savior, our Lord, our King commands to us today, and we would do well uh, to hear it and not uh, simply dismiss it. So let's consider what he says. What does it mean? Um, what kind of a relationship are we having with those who serve, or um, to those whom we serve and those who rule over us? The first thing he says, the first thing he calls us to is submissiveness. And this, in a general way, describes the whole relationship. Submission describes our relationship as a whole to those who are over us. In it, God wants us to voluntarily give ourselves to those who are in charge and give ourselves in a number of ways. And what I'm going to do, he includes two here, obedience and readiness for good works, I'm going to to address those um, using the framework of the larger catechism, our larger catechism, which talks about the uh, fifth commandment at one point. The question in the larger catechism is exactly what we have this morning. What is it that inferiors owe superiors? 
What is it that those who are to submit owe to those who are in charge? And I want to think about the various things it describes there in light of the word of God, in light of what Titus is saying or Paul is saying here, um, that we might remember these things and be reminded of them. So what does submission include? One thing we might say at the beginning is reverence. Reverence. Submission is is an act of the heart. And it has external applications. Reverence. What is reverence? To revere someone, to show reverence, means to show respect that is due a person. It's starting in the heart, remembering that in the, that the office that someone holds, the position someone holds, is a thing of importance. It's no small thing to be a mother, a father, a teacher, a governor. These are weighty callings and Many of us who fulfill or fill these callings recognize that we don't always feel up to the task because they're weighty. And because of the weightiness of them, we have titles, mother, father, teacher, governor, and many others. We do well to remember these things in our hearts. We show reverence in this way. And of course, we exhibit this in our words and behavior So, for example, we use titles like Mr. and Mrs., um, Doctor, and these kinds of things. With a very high degree of reverence, we refer to judges as what? Your honor. Right? That's a title of reverence. You even hear it in the word, right? Honor. Your honor. Reverence means perhaps not interrupting. Maybe reverence means standing when a person enters a room. Being respectful with regard to their time and many other things. These particular symbols or acts or words or titles will be very, very dependent upon culture and upon the exact circumstances of the moment. And so that will depend. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly whether one should kneel or bow or curtsy or shake a hand or tip a hat. Um, These things are somewhat dependent on the culture that we live in and we need to be sensitive to that as Christians. The key is to be sensitive to the fact that we are called to respect, however that form may take. The opposite of it, the opposite of reverence, is what the scripture calls reviling. And the scripture has strong things to say about revilers. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, do not associate with a quote-unquote brother who is a reviler. And Jesus, of course, leads the way in this. In 1 Peter 2.23, we are reminded that when Jesus was reviled, when he was not given the respect and honor that he was due, he did not revile in return. So even those to though even those who showed Jesus, our Lord, the great teacher, great contempt and unfairness, Jesus remained respectful. You can consider his actions before the Jewish leaders, uh, before Pontius Pilate and others. As I said, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly which titles to use and whether, uh, what we should do in every single moment. I'm not here to make the case for this or that specific practice, but simply to say that in an increasingly informal and egalitarian society, not all of which is bad, 
But we can't use those things as an excuse to disobey the Lord's command. We can't use those things as an excuse to not revere, show reverence, and submit when we are called to submit. Our job as Christians is to learn the culture around us that God places us in so that we may show due reverence as he commands us to do. But of course, we have to remember it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. A second thing we can mention is that the catechism mentions is prayer and thanksgiving for those who are over us. A second aspect of submission. As Christians, we know that even the highest of the highest authorities of men are still under the king of heaven. And they need his help. They need his help. They owe their life, their position, their honor, all of it. Uh, To him, the scriptures say that it is the Lord who gives honor. It is the Lord who gives riches. It is the Lord who gives position and title. They are dependent on him. They are men just as we are. And so we are called to pray for them. It is commanded. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, he says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, and especially, he says, I want you to be praying for those who are in authority over you. And hear that list of types of prayers again. Supplications, prayers, He says, intercessions and thanksgiving. Thanksgivings, that's a remarkable list considering that a man like Nero was emperor at the time Paul was writing these things. A terrible leader, an evil, wicked human. Nevertheless, Christians were to find ways, must find ways to pray, not only prayers of intercessions and supplications, but even of thanksgivings. For a man like him, how do you do that? I'll let you discuss that one over lunch. (laughs) Next, imitation of their virtues and graces is the next that's on the list of the catechism, and rightly so. Sometimes there are wicked men like Nero who do not stand as role models in hardly any way, but frequently God puts in charge those who have some some good kind of characteristic in them, some good quality. But what is it? What are they? We should be studying those who are in charge of us, who are leaders over us, who are authorities over us. What good can we identify in them? This is not to excuse evil or turn evil into good, but to recognize good wherever it is to give God the glory and praise for it and follow uh, the examples as we have them. Paul says in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you of the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Lots of instructions as well, not only for Christians, but um, for children and parents. Much of Proverbs, all of Proverbs is formed in this way, right? A a father, a mother speaking to uh, their children. Children calling to pay attention, to be wise and learn their way, even the way of life. 
Children, one of the chief reasons you have parents is so that you can pay attention to them, so that you can learn from them. It's a huge blessing that God teaches us some of the most important lessons we know right in our own homes, in our kitchens, in our bedrooms, in the backyard, these places that are very close to us, people who know us so well in our most difficult times, in our happiest times, in the times when we're tired, in the times when we're not tired, the times when we're sick, the times when we're healthy. Um, For many of us, God has blessed us with parents who are there at that moment, in that place, in that time. We do well to pay attention to what they're saying, how they're living, and kind of examples that they are setting. So the next that is on the list um, is willing obedience. And this, of course, is explicit in Paul's instructions here. So let's deal with that now. Obedience refers to the actions that flow out of submission. Obedience means being is doing as we are told to do. Frequently, people try to avoid obedience in every way. They'll even flatter and talk as though they are submissive, But then when it comes to actually do the thing they've been told to do, it's all excuses, halfway work or worse. One of the excuses we make sometimes for not obeying is that the one who is in charge of us doesn't do a very good job themselves. I don't have to obey them. They're a terrible boss, for example. Now, of course, if someone ever asks you to do something that is against God's will, then yes, of course, disobey. That is your obligation. You are, you are obeying in your disobedience. Of course, not obeying a, a human, but obeying God, who, to whom we owe all obedience and in every way. If someone asks you to do something that is against God's will, you disobey. But in everything else... You don't slip away. You don't make excuses. Of course there are bad superiors. There are people that don't do a good job and they're not worthy of the office. But let me ask you this. Are there not bad inferiors as well? Should a good leader cease to do his or her job simply because those who are under them are doing a bad job? Should a leader walk away and abdicate and say, no, forget this, I'm not going to bother simply because... My kids won't obey, or my employees won't do their work, or whatever it is. Of course not. The one who's in charge still has to do the job and the calling that they're called to do, even if the people on the other side of the equation aren't doing their part. Well, the, the reverse is also true. Just because we have a bad leader, just because someone who's in charge that isn't doing a very good job, doesn't mean that all of a sudden those who are under have no responsibility now, that we don't have to fulfill our callings. If we all just give in to sin because someone else is sinning, or we all do a bad job because someone else is doing a bad job, that's a quick race to the bottom. And dysfunction and all kinds of terrible things, sin most particularly. Instead, Paul tells us to be obedient. Whether the person in charge is doing a good job or not. To do well and do our service to the Lord. As Paul says, not just obeying here in our passage in Titus 3. Not just be obeying. Here's a kicker. He always pushes it, right, to the next level. He says, but being ready 
for every good work. That means not just waiting to be told what to do and then doing it, but actually anticipating what you might be told what to do. A kind of looking ahead, a kind of eagerness and foresight, a question that's being asked in your mind all the time, how can I help? What can I do? What might be asked of me? It means putting ourselves proactively in places of service, seeking opportunities to be told what to do. It means learning the rhythms of service and of those whom we serve. This is a high calling, isn't it? And it is, of course, I'll say here and probably say again, it is exactly the calling that Jesus fulfilled when he came into this world as a servant and obeyed perfectly. He was ready, he was anticipating, he was able, um, he was proactive, he was paying attention, ready to do every good work. And because he did that, you and I are saved from our sins. This is a good thing that um, God is calling us to do here. The next thing on our list is submitting to corrections. As we saw um, earlier um, in the previous verse, in chapter 2, verse 15, Titus has the job to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Those who are in charge are called to teach, yes, and also to rebuke. When a sheep goes astray, the shepherd must correct. This happens not only in the church, but in the family and in civil society as well. Romans 13, Paul tells us that civil magistrates are God's deacons, God's servants, who are given by God to correct wrongs. One, a couple verses from that passage, Romans 13, 3 through 4 says, Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, a magistrate's. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The Bible tells us that when a fool does something wrong and is corrected, he does not submit. When a fool does something wrong and is corrected, he does not submit. What does he do? Complains, makes excuses, blames it on other people, refuses to say sorry, refuses to learn. But a submissive heart to the Lord and to those who he has put over us instead does what Proverbs 12, 1 says. Who, uh, I'll read Proverbs six twenty three and then come back to 12. Proverbs six twenty three says, For the commandment is a lamp and, a, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. That's a strong way of thinking about discipline. Hey, when you, next time you're getting in trouble at work, <laughs> say, this is the way of life. <laughs> not just how things happen, happen, have to be, not that sense, but the sense of this is the path. This leads to life. Now, that's hard sometimes. And it's not always fair, and it's not always deserved, and you have to be discerning about these things, of course. But when we've done wrong, and when we're being corrected, We should submit to it. We should learn from it. It is the way of life. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, 
but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12.1. The wise person understands that even though discipline is unpleasant, uncomfortable, not fun, it leads to a good place when we submit to it in the Lord. Two more. Loyalty is uh, the next to the last one that the catechism mentions. Um, loyalty to them who, and defense and maintenance of their persons and authority. Our Lord said in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, 21, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar, as Caesar, has privileges, honors, rights. And Jesus says we must give them. A good servant doesn't simply serve uh, when he is or serve and do what he is told, he will also defend and protect and help maintain the position of those who are over him. Now, sometimes people will use submission and obedience as a cover for a coup, right? As a way to elbow their way up the ladder in the most gentlest of ways and take out people who are in control. They wear the clothes of servants but so that they can steal the robe of the king. But true servants don't do this. True servants are more like Daniel. Do you remember when, um, uh, in various ways, Daniel, he did not elbow his way into higher positions or use obedience and service as a way to get elevated, but through his service and and through his uh, protection and defense of those who were over him, he was elevated to those positions. Same for Joseph and many others. Loyalty and defense and maintenance of their persons and authority is right and honorable and pleasing to the Lord. The last thing to mention is bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love. The first thing that comes to my mind in this regard was uh, that a terrible account after the flood of Noah. Do you remember this? Noah, now the father of the world <laughs> and also the father of his, his sons, um, gets drunk, <laughs> really drunk, passes out and is lying naked. After falling into this drunkenness and into sin, he's found by one of his sons and Ham greatly disrespects him in this state. But according to Genesis 9, two other sons, Shem and Japheth, they lay, their, they lay a blanket on their shoulders, walk backwards into the tent, lay a blanket and cover their father, so that, and the scripture says in Genesis 9 that they saw not their father's nakedness. And as a result of this, they were, um, you can go read it for yourself, but the history of the world changed, I'll put it that way. They were honored and received many great blessings as a result of this. Our leaders will fall and fall hard and fall in big ways and small ways too. (laughs) Lots and lots of little things along the way that will aggravate you and frustrate you and you will be justified in being (laughs) aggravated and frustrated because they're wrong and they shouldn't happen. Our leaders will fall. 
just as their servants will fall and make mistakes, just as those who are under them. Kids, your parents are not perfect people. They are human like you. They struggle with the flesh, the sin, and the devil like you do. They're people like you, and it's hard. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to sin just as you do. When they do, do you kick them when they're down? Do you embarrass them? Do you highlight their weaknesses? Do you make them feel bad? Do you use their lowliness as an opportunity to exalt yourself? No. Instead, God calls us to be like these brothers, like these sons of Noah, whom God greatly blessed for their act of respect, to cover the infirmities of those who are over us. This doesn't mean that certain amounts of whistleblowing, as we call it today, or um, transparency and, and these kinds of things are also important. Um, they have their place. Justice must be done. Um, God is impartial, and he uh, rules over all. And so from that, we, we pay attention to those kinds of things. But it's also true that deference and respect and submission are what he calls us to. And it takes wisdom, doesn't it? to know what the right thing to do is. And so, this is what submission is. This is what God calls us to do. Why is this so important? Why does God tell Titus to remind them of these things, to reprove them even when they wander away from this? I want to mention just a few reasons as we close. For one, there will be those in the churches who do not yet know Christ and must be reminded of God's demand over their lives. And in part, and one of the ways he does this is by pointing out even the human rulers and authorities who are over us. The truth is, is that none of us are our own. None of us are gods unto ourselves, willing and deciding and doing whatever we want whenever we want it. This is our constant temptation is to think of ourselves this way. But it's simply not true. We are ruled, period. First and foremost, by God. And then by those he puts over us. Salvation through the gospel requires that we be humbled, that we learn to look to God even like a servant looks to a master. We will not be a people that are saved if we think that we can stand over God and rule him. If we are in charge, if we are masters of our own lives, of our own destinies, of our own deaths, our own futures. No, we owe obedience to him. And here in this law, we hear that we are not our own. We need to be humbled to the point, not only the point of obedience, but the point of forgiveness. We need to look at our lives and the ways in which we have failed to obey this command in all of the varied ways in which it comes to us and say, Lord, I have not done well. And there are ways in which I am not doing well. The law comes to us and it calls, calls us, it, it, or it points us rather to Christ who offers us forgiveness. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we come to see exactly what our disobedience deserves. 
Sometimes we excuse our disobedience. Eh, it's not a big thing. Does God really care about this particular sin? Wow, that verse about revilers was really strong. Maybe I'll think about that some other time. But you look at the cross of Christ and you see this is how highly God regards this commandment, the fifth commandment, to honor our father and mother and honor those that God puts over us. Jesus didn't go to the cross just because. He went to the cross to take on the punishment for our sins. This is what our sins deserve. But in going to the cross, something wonderful also happens. He not only shows us what our sins and deserves, but he actually removes uh, the barrier that is between us and God for our rebellion. Our rebellion to God by disobeying those he has put over us and ultimately disobeying him. That's what it's all about. Jesus takes that enmity, that anger, that uh, disobedience that we have been giving to God and he breaks that down in our hearts. He comes into us as a king and he changes us and reconciles us to God in part by forgiving our sins so that we can approach him and also by subduing us by his mercy and by his grace so that we would love him as we ought. Consider again, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' obedience. Though he was the king and ruler of all, he chose to be born under the law, Galatians says. Philippians tells us that he was humbled, he humbled himself and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's how far Jesus was willing to obey in order to save you because he loved you. As we've read here in Titus, because Jesus loves us and wants to save us from our rebelliousness, from our ungodliness, he has taken the punishment that we deserve. In thinking, in seeing our sins exposed and hearing them through the light of the cross, this should lead us to faith, brothers and sisters, to trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. We have a problem with rebellion, it's true. But he fixes that for us. He forgives us for the sins that we have committed. And so as you look at your own lives and you see your disobedience, your unsubmissiveness, your unwillingness to be ready for good works, your self-deifying, self-glorifying flesh, as you feel perhaps the fear of the wrath of God for these things, then look to the cross and remember that the very one whom you have sinned against offers you and gives to us the deepest and most perfect forgiveness so that we might pray to God and call him our Father and know that he forgives our sins. And as those who have been forgiven, when we consider the gospel of our salvation and know that there is healing not just uh, not just in our hearts, but in our relationships, in our service. We can remember that Jesus is continuing to work through, for us by his intercession and through his Holy Spirit and even through this word this morning. He's teaching us, reminding us, and working in our hearts 
so that we can seek his strength, the servant of servants, and find in him the strength that we need to be the servants he calls us to be. We live not just for this or that other person, but ultimately we live for God and from him and through him. Through him, we can do the impossible, which is put to death the rebellious flesh and put on a new kind of life, a way, a life that enables us to wake up each day and serve even imperfect, frustrating, aggravating people in our lives with hearts of joy, knowing that ultimately we serve our Lord and our Savior. God wants us to remember his law and to seek obedience in him. God calls us to obey with submissiveness, obedience, and readiness. We do this not only because he is our king, but because he is our savior. And when we fail, we can look to him for forgiveness. And when we, need, when we are weak, we can look to him for strength. Let's pray now and ask that he would do this for us. Our heavenly father, we thank you for your tender mercies to us. We thank you for the strength that we have as we put on Christ and the armor of God. We ask that you would help us to trust him above all people and all institutions, above all honors and all wealth, above all station, above all authority. It is easy sometimes for servants to, um, to be overly afraid of those who are in charge of them. Let this not be the case. And neither let us use... Um, Use our, our, our status as the beloved ones of God as an excuse for not giving the, the service and respect that we owe to those who are over us. We also ask, Lord, that you would indeed forgive us of our sins. As we do this thorough examination of our own hearts, we, we see the many ways in which we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Ways in which we have all fallen short of the obedience which we owe to you even as you call us to obey other people. This is very humbling, Lord, and we, ask that, and we thank you for it. We thank you for knocking us off our high horses. We thank you for uh, restraining us from trying to make ourselves into our own little gods. Because ultimately we know that as your children and as your servants, that true freedom and true life comes from knowing and being in you, serving you, worshiping you, loving you. Please be at the center of all of our lives through the grace of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for his forgiveness and the work he did for us on the cross that we might know that we are forgiven of our sins and that we have everything we need in him. Help us to remember your reminder. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.